Section 20 of The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Foster. The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government, Volume 2 by Jefferson Davis. Part 4, Chapter 34. Address to the Army of Eastern Virginia by the President. Army of General Pope. Position of McClellan. Advance of General Jackson. Atrocious orders of General Pope. Letter of McClellan on the conduct of war. Letter of the President to General Lee. Battle of Cedar Run. Results of the engagement. Reinforcements to the enemy. Second Battle of Manassas. Capture of Manassas Junction. Captured stores. The old battlefield. Advance of General Longstreet. Attack on him. Attack on General Jackson. Darkness of the Night. Battle at Ox Hill. Losses of the Enemy. This defeat of McClellan's army led me to issue the following address. Richmond, July 5, 1862. To the Army of Eastern Virginia. Soldiers, I congratulate you on the series of brilliant victories which, under the favor of divine providence, you have lately won and, as the President of the Confederate States, do heartily tender to you the thanks of the country, whose just cause you have so skillfully and heroically served. Ten days ago an invading army, vastly superior to you in numbers and the materials of war, closely beleaguered your capital and vauntingly proclaimed its speedy conquest. You marched to attack the enemy in his entrenchments. With well-directed movements and death-defying valor, you charged upon him in his strong positions, drove him from field to field over a distance of more than thirty-five miles, and despite his reinforcements, compelled him to seek safety under the cover of his gunboats, where he now lies cowering before the army so lately derided and threatened with entire subjugation. The fortitude with which you have borne toil and privation, the gallantry with which you have entered into each successive battle, must have been witnessed to be fully appreciated but a grateful people will not fail to recognize you and to bear you in loved remembrance. Well may it be said of you that you have done enough for glory, but duty to a suffering country and to the cause of constitutional liberty claims from you yet further effort. Let it be your pride to relax in nothing which can promote your future efficiency, your one great object being to drive the invader from your soil and, carrying your standards beyond the other boundaries of the Confederacy, to wring from an unscrupulous foe the recognition of your birthright community independence. Jefferson Davis After the retreat of General McClellan to Westover, his army remained inactive about a month. His front was closely watched by a brigade of cavalry, and preparations made to resist a renewal of his attempt upon Richmond from his new base. The main body of our army awaited the development of his intentions, and no important event took place. Meantime, another army of the enemy, under Major General Pope, advanced southward from Washington, and crossed the Rappahannock as if to seize Gordonsville, and moved thence upon Richmond. Contemporaneously, the enemy appeared in force at Fredericksburg, and threatened the railroad from Gordonsville to Richmond, apparently for the purpose of cooperating with the movements of General Pope. To meet the advance of the latter, and restrain, as far as possible, the atrocities which he threatened to perpetrate upon our defenseless citizens, General Jackson, with his own and Ewell's division, was ordered to proceed on July 13th toward Gordonsville. The nature of the atrocities here alluded to may be inferred from the orders of Major General Pope, which were as follows. Headquarters of the Army of Virginia, Washington, July 18th, 1862. General Orders, Number 5. 
Hereafter, as far as practicable, the troops of this command will subsist upon the country in which their operations are carried on. In all cases, supplies for this purpose will be taken by the officers to whose department they properly belong, under the orders of the commanding officer of the troops for whose use they are intended. Vouchers will be given to the owners, stating on their face that they will be payable at the close of the war upon sufficient testimony being furnished that such owners have been loyal citizens of the United States since the date of the vouchers. By command of Major General Pope, George D. Ruggles, Colonel, Assistant Adjutant General, and Chief of Staff. Headquarters of the Army of Virginia, July 18, 1862. General Orders No. 6. Hereafter, in any operations of the cavalry forces in this command, no supply or baggage trains of any description will be used, unless so stated especially in the order for the movement. Two days' cooked rations will be carried on the persons of the men, and all villages and neighborhoods through which they pass will be laid under contribution in the manner specified by General Orders No. 5 Current Series from these headquarters for the subsistence of men and horses. By command of Major General Pope, George D. Ruggles, Colonel, Assistant Adjutant General, and Chief of Staff. Headquarters, Army of Virginia, Washington, July 18, 1862. General Orders No. 7. The people of the Valley of the Shenandoah and throughout the region of operations of this army, living along the lines of railroad and telegraph and along routes of travel in the rear of United States forces, are notified that they will be held responsible for any injury done the track, line, or road, or for any attacks upon the trains or straggling soldiers, by bands of guerrillas in their neighborhood. Evil-disposed persons in the rear of our armies, who do not themselves engage directly in these lawless acts, encouraged by refusing to interfere, or give any information by which such acts can be prevented, or the perpetrators punished. Safety of the life and property of all persons living in the rear of our advancing army depends upon the maintenance of peace and quiet among themselves, and upon the unmolested movements through their midst of all pertaining to the military service. They are to understand distinctly that the security of travel is their only warrant of personal safety. If a soldier or legitimate follower of the army be fired upon from any house, the house shall be razed to the ground, and the inhabitants sent prisoners to the headquarters of this army. If such an outrage occur at any place distant from settlements, the people within five miles around shall be held accountable, and made to pay an indemnity sufficient for the case. And any person detected in such outrages, either during the act or at any time afterward, shall be shot without waiting civil process. By command of Major General Pope, George D. Ruggles, Colonel. Headquarters, Army of Virginia, Washington, July 23, 1862. General Orders, Number 11. Commanders of Army Corps, Divisions, Brigades, and Detached Commands will proceed immediately to arrest all disloyal male citizens within their lines, or within their reach in the rear of their respective stations. Such as are willing to take the oath of allegiance to the United States, and will furnish sufficient security for its observance, shall be permitted to remain at their homes, and pursue in good faith their accustomed avocations. Those who refuse shall be conducted south beyond the extreme pickets of the army, and be notified that, if found again anywhere within our lines or at any point in the rear, they will be considered spies and subjected to the extreme rigor of the military law. By command of Major General Pope. George D. Ruggles, Colonel, Assistant Adjutant General, and Chief of Staff. Thus was announced a policy of pillage, outrage upon unarmed, peaceable people, arson, and ruthless insult to the defenseless. Had the vigor of the campaign been equal to the bombastic manifesto of this disgrace to the profession of arms, the injuries inflicted would have been more permanent. The conduct could scarcely have been more brutal.
in recurring to the letter of general george b mcclellan written at camp near harrison's landing virginia july seventh eighteen sixty two to the president of the united states one must be struck with the strong contrast between the suggestions of general mcclellan and the orders of general pope the inquiry naturally arises was it because of this difference that pope had been assigned to the command of the army of virginia mcclellan wrote this rebellion has assumed the character of a war as such it should be regarded and it should be conducted upon the highest principles known to christian civilization it should not be a war looking to the subjugation of the people of any state in any event it should not be at all a war upon population but against armed forces and political organizations neither confiscation of property political executions of persons territorial organizations of states or forcible abolition of slavery should be contemplated for a moment in prosecuting the war all private property and unarmed persons should be strictly protected subject only to the necessity of military operations all private property taken for military use should be paid or receipted for pillage and waste should be treated as high crimes all unnecessary trespass sternly prohibited and offensive demeanor by the military towards citizens promptly rebuked military arrests should not be tolerated except in places where active hostilities exist and oaths not required by enactments constitutionally should be neither demanded nor received had these views been accepted and the conduct of the government of the united states been in accordance with them the most shameful chapters in american history could not have been written and some of the more respectable newspapers of the north would not have had the apprehensions they expressed of the evils which would befall the country when an army habituated to thieving should be disbanded on the reception of copies of the orders issued by general pope inserted above i addressed to general lee commanding our army in virginia the following letter richmond virginia july thirty first eighteen sixty two sir on the twenty third of this month a cartel for a general exchange of prisoners of war was signed between major general d h hill in behalf of the confederate states and major general john a dix in behalf of the united states by the terms of that cartel it is stipulated that all prisoners of war hereafter taken shall be discharged on parole until exchanged scarcely had that cartel been signed when the military authorities of the united states commenced a practice changing the character of the war from such as becomes civilized nations into a campaign of indiscriminate robbery and murder the general order issued by the secretary of war of the united states in the city of washington on the very day that the cartel was signed in virginia directs the military commanders of the united states to take the private property of our people for the convenience and use of their armies without compensation the general order issued by major general pope on the twenty third of july the day after the signing of the cartel directs the murder of our peaceful inhabitants as spies if found quietly tilling their farms in his rear even outside of his lines and one of his brigadier generals steinware has seized upon innocent and peaceful inhabitants to be held as hostages to the end that they may be murdered in cold blood if any of his soldiers are killed by some unknown persons whom he designates as bushwhackers under this state of facts this government has issued the enclosed general order recognizing general pope and his commissioned officers to be in the position which they have chosen for themselves that of robbers and murderers and not that of public enemies entitled if captured to be considered as prisoners of war we find ourselves driven by our enemies in their steady progress toward a practice which we abhor and which we are vainly struggling to avoid some of the military authorities of the united states seem to suppose that better success will attend a savage war in which no quarter is to be given and no sex to be spared than has hitherto been secured by such hostilities as are alone recognized to be lawful by civilized men in modern times 
For the present we renounce our right of retaliation on the innocent, and shall continue to treat the private enlisted soldiers of General Pope's army as prisoners of war. But if, after notice to the government at Washington of our confining repressive measures to the punishment only of commissioned officers, who are willing participants in these crimes, these savage practices are continued, we shall reluctantly be forced to the last resort of accepting the war on the terms chosen by our foes, until the outraged voice of a common humanity forces a respect for the recognized rules of war. While these facts would justify our refusal to execute the generous cartel, by which we have consented to liberate in excess of thousands of prisoners held by us, beyond the number held by the enemy, a sacred regard to plighted faith, shrinking from the mere semblance of breaking a promise, prevents our resort to this extremity. Nor do we desire to extend to any other forces of the enemy the punishment merited alone by General Pope and such commissioned officers as choose to participate in the execution of his infamous orders. You are therefore instructed to communicate to the Commander-in-Chief of the Armies of the United States the contents of this letter and a copy of the enclosed general order, to the end that he may be notified of our intention not to consider any officers hereafter captured from General Pope's army as prisoners of war. Very respectfully yours, etc. Jefferson Davis when General Jackson arrived near Gordonsville on July 19, 1862, he was at his request reinforced by Major General A.P. Hill. Receiving information that only a part of General Pope's army was at Culpeper Courthouse, General Jackson, hoping to defeat it before reinforcements should arrive, moved in that direction the divisions of Ewell, Hill, and Jackson on August 7th from their encampments near Gordonsville. As the enemy's cavalry displayed unusual activity and the train of Jackson's division was seriously endangered, General Lawton, with his brigade, was ordered to guard it. On August 9th, Jackson arrived within eight miles of Culpeper Courthouse and found the foe in his front near Cedar Run and a short distance west and north of Slaughter Mountain. When first seen, the cavalry in large force occupied a ridge to the right of the road. A battery opened upon it and soon forced it to retire. Our fire was responded to by some guns beyond the ridge from which the advance had just been driven. Soon after, the cavalry returned to the position where it was first seen, and General Early was ordered forward, keeping near the Culpeper Road, while General Ewell, with his two remaining brigades, diverged from the road to the right, advancing along the western slope of Slaughter Mountain. General Early, forming his brigade in line of battle, moved into the open field, and passing a short distance to the right of the road but parallel to it, pushed forward, driving the opposing cavalry before him to the crest of a hill which overlooked the ground between his troops and the opposite hill, along which the enemy's batteries were posted, and opened upon him as soon as he reached the eminence. Early retired his troops under the protection of the hill, and a small battery of ours, in advance of his right, opened. Meantime, General Vinder, with Jackson's brigade, was placed on the left of the road, Campbell's brigade, Lieutenant Colonel Garnett commanding, being on the left, Taliaferro's parallel to the road, supporting the batteries, and Vinder's own brigade under Colonel Rowland in reserve. The battle opened with a fierce fire of artillery, which continued about two hours, during which Brigadier General Charles S. Vinder, while directing the positions of his batteries, received a wound, from the effects of which he expired in a few hours. General Jackson thus spoke of him in his report. It is difficult, within the proper reserve of an official report, to do justice to the merits of this accomplished officer. Urged by the medical director to take no part in the movements of the day, because of the then enfeebled state of his health, his ardent patriotism and military pride could bear no restraint. Richly endowed with those qualities of mind and person which fit an officer for command, and which attract the admiration and excite the enthusiasm of troops, he was rapidly rising to the front rank of his profession. His loss has been severely felt. Charles Vinder had attracted my special notice when I was Secretary of War of the United States by an act of heroism and devotion to duty which it gives me pleasure to record.
a regiment of artillery in which he was a second lieutenant being under orders for california embarked on the steamer san francisco and in a storm became disabled drifting helplessly at sea she was approached by a bark which to give succor hove to not being able to receive all the passengers the commissioned officers left as the colonel naively reported in the order of their rank vinder alone remained with the troops in great discomfort and by strenuous exertion the wreck was kept afloat until a vessel bound for liverpool came to the relief of the sufferers arriving at liverpool vinder left the soldiers there went to the american consul in london got means to provide for their needs and returned with them soon afterward four regiments were added to the army and for his good conduct so full of promise he was nominated to be a captain of infantry and notwithstanding his youth was confirmed and commissioned accordingly he died manifesting the same spirit as on the wreck that which holds life light when weighed against honor the enemy's infantry advanced about five p m and attacked general early in front while another body concealed by the inequality of the ground moved upon his right thomas's brigade of a p hill's division which had now arrived was sent to his support and the contest soon became animated in the meantime the main body of the opposing army under cover of a wood and the undulations of the field gained the left of jackson's division now commanded by brigadier general taliaferro and poured a destructive fire into its flank and rear campbell's brigade fell back in confusion exposing the flank of taliaferro's which also gave way as did the left of early's the rest of his brigade however firmly held its ground vinder's brigade with branches of a p hill's division on its right advanced promptly to the support of jackson's division and after a sanguinary struggle the assailants were repulsed with loss pender's and archer's brigades also of hill's division came up on the left of vinder's and by a general charge the foe was driven back in confusion leaving the ground covered with his dead and wounded general ewell with the two brigades on the extreme right had been prevented from advancing by the fire of our own artillery which swept his approach to the enemy's left the obstacle being now removed he pressed forward under a hot fire and came gallantly into action repulsed and vigorously followed on our left and centre and now hotly pressed on our right the whole line of the enemy gave way and was soon in full retreat night had now set in but general jackson desiring to enter culpeper courthouse before morning determined to pursue hill's division led the advance but owing to the darkness it was compelled to move slowly and with caution the enemy was found about a mile and a half in the rear of the field of battle and information was received that reinforcements had arrived general jackson thereupon halted for the night and the next day becoming satisfied that the enemy's force had been so largely increased as to render a further advance on his part imprudent he sent his wounded to the rear and proceeded to bury the dead and collect the arms from the battlefield on the eleventh the enemy asked and received permission to bury those of his dead not already interred general jackson remained in position during the day and at night returned to the vicinity of gordonsville in this engagement four hundred prisoners including a brigadier general were captured and fifty-three hundred stand of small arms one piece of artillery several caissons and three colors fell into our hands our killed were two hundred twenty nine wounded one thousand forty seven total one thousand two hundred seventy six the loss on the other side exceeded fifteen hundred of whom nearly three hundred were taken prisoners the victory of cedar run effectually checked the invader for a time but it soon became apparent that his army was receiving a large increase the corps of major-general burnside from north carolina which had reached fredericksburg was reported to have moved up the rappahannock a few days after the battle to unite with general pope and a part of general mcclellan's army had left westover for the same purpose 
It therefore seemed that active operations on the James were no longer contemplated, and that the most effectual way to relieve Richmond from any danger of an attack would be to reinforce General Jackson and advance upon General Pope. Accordingly, on August 13th, Longstreet, Anderson, and Stuart were ordered to proceed to Gordonsville. On the 16th, the troops began to move from the vicinity of Gordonsville toward the Rapidan, on the north side of which, extending along the Orange and Alexandria Railroad in the direction of Culpeper Courthouse, the army of invasion lay in great force. It was determined with the cavalry to destroy the railroad bridge over the Rappahannock in rear of the enemy, while Jackson and Longstreet crossed the Rapidan and attacked his left flank. But the enemy, becoming apprised of our design, hastily retreated beyond the Rappahannock. On the 21st, our forces moved toward that river, and some sharp skirmishing ensued with our cavalry that had crossed at Beverly's Ford. As it had been determined in the meantime not to attempt the passage of the river at that point with the army, the cavalry withdrew to the south side. Soon afterward, the enemy appeared in great strength on the opposite bank, and an active fire was kept up during the rest of the day between his artillery and the batteries attached to Jackson's leading division under Brigadier General Taliaferro but as our positions on the south bank of the rappahannock were commanded by those on the north bank and which served to guard all the fords general lee determined to seek a more favorable place to cross higher up the river and thus gain his adversary's right accordingly general longstreet was directed to leave kelly's ford on the twenty first and take the position in the vicinity of beverly's ford and the orange and alexandria railroad bridge then held by jackson in order to mask the movement of the latter who was instructed to ascend the river on the 22nd, Jackson proceeded up the Rappahannock, leaving Trimble's brigade near Freeman's Ford to protect his train. In the afternoon, Longstreet sent General Hood with his own and Whiting's brigade to relieve Trimble. Hood had just reached the position when he and Trimble were attacked by a considerable force which had crossed at Freeman's Ford. After a short but spirited engagement, the enemy was driven precipitately over the river with heavy loss. General Jackson attempted to cross at Warrenton Springs Ford, but was interrupted by a heavy rain, which caused the river to rise so rapidly as to be impassable for infantry and artillery, and he withdrew the troops that had reached the opposite side. General Stuart, who had been directed to cut the railroad in rear of General Pope's army, crossed the Rappahannock on the morning of the 22nd, about six miles above the springs, with parts of Lee's and Robertson's brigades. He reached Catlett Station that night, but was prevented destroying the railroad bridge there by the same storm that arrested Jackson's movements. He captured more than 300 prisoners, including a number of officers. Apprehensive of the effect of the rain upon the streams, he recrossed the Rappahannock at Warrenton Springs. The rise of the river, rendering the lower fords impassable, enabled the enemy to concentrate his main body opposite General Jackson, and on the 24th Longstreet was ordered by General Lee to proceed to his support. Although retarded by the swollen condition of Hazel River and other tributaries of the Rappahannock, he reached Jeffersonton in the afternoon. General Jackson's command lay between that place and the Springs Ford, and a warm cannonade was progressing between the batteries of General A.P. Hill's division and those in his front. The enemy was massed between Warrenton and the Springs, and guarded the fords of the Rappahannock as far above as Waterloo. The army of General McClellan had left Westover, and part had marched to join General Pope. It was reported that the rest would soon follow. The greater part of the army of General Cox had also been withdrawn from the Kanawha Valley from the same purpose. Two brigades of D. H. Hill's division under General Ripley had already been ordered from Richmond, and the remainder were to follow. Also, McLaws's division, two brigades under General Walker, and Hampton's cavalry brigade. In pursuance of the plan of operations now determined upon, Jackson was directed, on the 25th, to cross above Waterloo and move around the enemy's right, so as to strike the Orange and Alexandria Railroad in his rear. 
Longstreet, in the meantime, was to divert his attention by threatening him in front, and to follow Jackson as soon as the latter should be sufficiently advanced. General Jackson crossed the Rappahannock on the 25th about four miles above Waterloo, and after sunset on the 26th reached the railroad at Bristow Station. At Gainesville he was joined by General Stuart with the brigades of Robertson and Fitzhugh Lee, who continued with him during his operations, and effectually guarded both his flanks. General Jackson was now between the large army of General Pope and Washington City, without having encountered any considerable force. At Bristow, two trains of cars were captured and a few prisoners taken, determining, notwithstanding the darkness of the night and the long and arduous march of the day, to capture the depot of the enemy at Manassas Junction, about seven miles distant. General Trimble volunteered to proceed at once to that place with the 21st North Carolina and the 21st Georgia regiments. The offer was accepted, and to render success more certain, General Stuart was directed to accompany the expedition with part of his cavalry. About midnight the place was taken with little difficulty. Eight pieces of artillery with their horses, ammunition, and equipments were captured. More than 300 prisoners, 175 horses, besides those belonging to the artillery, 200 new tents, and immense quantities of commissary and quartermaster stores fell into our hands. Ewell's division, with the 5th Virginia Cavalry under Colonel Bosser, were left at Bristow Station, and the rest of the command arrived at the junction early on the 27th. Soon a considerable force of the enemy under Brigadier General Taylor of New Jersey approached from the direction of Alexandria and pushed forward boldly to recover the stores. After a sharp engagement he was routed and driven back, leaving his killed and wounded on the field. The troops remained at Manassas Junction during the day and supplied themselves with everything they required. In the afternoon two brigades advanced against General Ewell at Bristow from the direction of Warrenton Junction, but were broken and repulsed. Their place was soon supplied with fresh troops, but it was apparent that the commander had now become aware of the situation of affairs, and had turned upon General Jackson with his whole force. General Ewell, perceiving the strength of the column, withdrew and rejoined General Jackson, having first destroyed the railroad bridge over Broad Run. The enemy halted at Bristow. General Jackson, having a much inferior force to General Pope, retired from Manassas Junction and took a position west of the Turnpike Road from Warrenton to Alexandria, where he could more readily unite with the approaching column of Longstreet. Having supplied the wants of his troops, he was compelled, through lack of transportation, to destroy the rest of the captured property. Many thousand pounds of bacon, a thousand barrels of corned beef, two thousand barrels of salt pork, and two thousand barrels of floor, besides other property of great value, were burned. During the night of the 27th of August, Taliaferro's division crossed the turnpike near Groveton and halted on the west side, near the battlefield of July 21, 1861, where it was joined on the 28th by the divisions of Hill and Ewell. During the afternoon, the enemy, approaching from the direction of Warrenton down the turnpike toward Alexandria, exposed his left flank, and General Jackson determined to attack him. A fierce and sanguinary conflict ensued, which continued until about 9 p.m., when he slowly fell back and left us in possession of the field. The loss on both sides was heavy. On the next morning, the 29th, the enemy had taken a position to interpose his army between General Jackson and Alexandria, and about 10 a.m. opened with artillery upon the right of Jackson's line. The troops of the latter were disposed in rear of Groveton, along the line of the unfinished branch of the Manassas Gap Railroad, and extending from a point a short distance west of the turnpike towards Sudley Mill, Jackson's division under Brigadier General Stark being on the right, Swells under General Lawton in the center, and A.P. Hill on the left. The attacking columns were evidently concentrating on Jackson with the design of overwhelming him before the arrival of Longstreet. This latter officer left his position opposite Warrenton Springs on the 26th and marched to join Jackson. 
On the 28th, arriving at Thoroughfare Gap, he found the enemy prepared to dispute his progress. Holding the eastern extremity of the pass with a large force, the enemy directed a heavy fire of artillery upon the road leading to it and upon the sides of the mountain. An attempt was made to turn his right, but before our troops reached artillery upon the road leading to it and upon the sides of the mountain, holding the eastern extremity of the pass with a large force, the enemy directed a heavy fire of artillery upon the road leading to it and upon the sides of the mountain. An attempt was made to turn his right, but before our troops reached their destination, he advanced to the attack, and, being vigorously repulsed, withdrew to his position at the eastern end of the gap, keeping up an active fire of artillery until dark. He then retreated. On the morning of the 29th, Longstreet's command resumed its march, the sound of cannon at Manassas announcing that Jackson was already engaged. The head of the column came upon the field in rear of the enemy's left, which had already opened with artillery upon Jackson's right, as above stated. Longstreet immediately placed some of his batteries in position, but before he could complete his dispositions to attack the force before him, it withdrew to another part of the field. He then took position on the right of Jackson, Hood's two brigades, supported by Evans, being deployed across the turnpike and at right angles to it. These troops were supported on the left by three brigades under General Wilcox and by a like force on the right under General Kemper. D.B. Jones's division formed the extreme right of the line resting on the Manassas Gap Railroad. The cavalry guarded our right and left flanks, that on the right being under General Stuart in person. After the arrival of Longstreet, the enemy changed his position and began to concentrate opposite Jackson's left, opening a brisk artillery fire which was responded to by some of A.P. Hill's batteries. Soon after, General Stuart reported the approach of a large force from the direction of Bristow Station, threatening Longstreet's right, but no serious attack was made, and after firing a few shots, that force withdrew. Meanwhile, a large column advanced to assail the left of Jackson's position, occupied by the division of General A.P. Hill. The attack was received by his troops with their accustomed steadiness, and the battle raged with great fury. The enemy was repeatedly repulsed, but again pressed on the attack with fresh troops. Once, he succeeded in penetrating an interval between General Gregg's brigade on the extreme left and that of General Thomas, but was quickly driven back with great slaughter by the 14th South Carolina Regiment, then in reserve, and the 49th Georgia of Thomas's brigade. The contest was close and obstinate. The combatants sometimes delivered their fire at a few paces. General Gregg, who was most exposed, was reinforced by Hayes's brigade under Colonel Forno. Gregg had successfully and most gallantly resisted the attack until the ammunition of his brigade was exhausted, and all his field officers but two killed or wounded. The reinforcement was of like high-tempered steel, and together in hand-to-hand -hand fight they held their post until they were relieved, after several hours of severe fighting, by Early's brigade and the 8th Louisiana Regiment. General Early drove the enemy back with heavy loss and pursued about 200 yards beyond the line of battle when he was recalled to the position on the railroad where Thomas, Pender, and Archer had firmly held their ground against every attack. While the battle was raging on Jackson's left, Hood and Evans were ordered by Longstreet to advance, but before the order could be obeyed, Hood was himself attacked, and his command became at once warmly engaged. The enemy was repulsed by Hood after a severe contest and fell back, closely followed by our troops. The battle continued until 9 p.m., the foe retreating until he reached a strong position, which he held with a large force. Our troops remained in their advanced position until early next morning, when they were withdrawn to their first line. One piece of artillery, several stands of colors, and a number of prisoners were captured. Our loss was severe. On the morning of the 30th, the enemy again advanced, and skirmishing began along the line. The troops of Jackson and Longstreet maintained their position of the previous day. At noon, the firing of the batteries ceased, and all was quiet for some hours.
About 3 p.m., the enemy, having massed his troops in front of General Jackson, advanced against his position in strong force. His front line pushed forward until it was engaged at close quarters by Jackson's troops, when its progress was cheeked, and a fierce and bloody struggle ensued. A second and third line of great strength moved up to support the first, but in doing so came within easy range of a position a little in advance of Longstreet's left. He immediately ordered up two batteries, and, two others being thrown forward about the same time by Colonel S. D. Lee, the supporting lines were broken, and fell back in confusion under their well-directed and destructive fire. Their repeated efforts to rally were unavailing, and Jackson's troops, being thus relieved from the pressure of overwhelming numbers, began to press steadily forward, driving everything before them. The enemy retreated in confusion, suffering severely from our artillery, which advanced as he retired. General Longstreet, anticipating the order for a general advance, now threw his whole command against the center and left. The whole line swept steadily on, driving the opponents with great carnage from each successive position until 10 p.m., when darkness put an end to the battle and the pursuit. The obscurity of the night and the uncertainty of the fords of Bull Run rendered it necessary to suspend operations until morning, when the cavalry, being pushed forward, discovered that the retreat had continued to the strong position of Centerville, about four miles beyond Bull Run. The prevalence of a heavy rain, which began during the night, threatened to render Bull Run impassable, and to impede our movements. Longstreet remained on the battlefield to engage attention and to protect parties for the burial of the dead and the removal of the wounded, while Jackson proceeded by Sudley's Ford to the Little River Turnpike to turn the enemy's right and intercept his retreat to Washington. Jackson's progress was retarded by the inclemency of the weather and the fatigue of his troops. He reached the turnpike in the evening, and the next day, September 1st, advanced by that road toward Fairfax Courthouse. The enemy, in the meantime, was falling back rapidly toward Washington, and had thrown a strong force to Germantown, on the Little River Turnpike, to cover his line of retreat from Centerville. The advance of Jackson encountered him at Ox Hill, near Germantown, about 5 p.m. Line of battle was at once formed, and two brigades were thrown forward to attack and ascertain the strength of the position. A cold and drenching rainstorm drove in the faces of our troops as they advanced and gallantly engaged. They were subsequently supported, and the conflict was obstinately maintained until dark, when the enemy retreated, having lost two general officers, one of whom, Major General Kearney, was left dead on the field. Longstreet's command arrived after the action was over, and the next morning it was found that the retreat had been so rapid that the attempt to intercept was abandoned. The proximity of the fortifications around Alexandria and Washington was enough to prevent further pursuit. Our army rested during the second near Chantilly the retreating foe being followed only by our cavalry, who continued to harass him until he reached the shelter of his entrenchments. In the series of engagements on the plains of Manassas, more than 7,000 prisoners were taken, in addition to about 2,000 wounded left in our hands. Thirty pieces of artillery, upward of 20,000 stand of small arms, numerous colors, and a large amount of stores, besides those taken by General Jackson at Manassas Junction, were captured. Major General Pope, in his report, says, The whole force that I had at Centerville, as reported to me by the Corps commanders, on the morning of the 1st of September, was as follows. McDowell's Corps, 10,000 men. Siegel's Corps, about 7,000. Heinzelman's Corps, about 6,000. Reno's, 6,000. Banks's, 5,000. Sumner's, 11,000. Porter's, 10,000. Franklin's, 8,000 in all 63,000 men. The small fraction of 20,500 men was all of the 91,000 veteran troops from Harrison's Landing which ever drew trigger under my command.
Our losses in the engagement at Manassas Plains were considerable. The number killed was 1,090. Wounded, 6,154. Total, 7,244. The loss of the enemy in killed, wounded, and missing was estimated between 15,000 and 20,000. The strength of our army in July and September is stated on a preceding page. End of section 20